Welcome to Depollution, the podcast from SalvageWire. In this rerun of our first ever podcast, we hear from Mark Robb. Mark runs Positive Reframe, a change management consultancy. And Mark talks about change management, leadership and employee engagement, amongst other things. It is well worth a listen. Over the last 15 years, Positive Reframe has been making positive, memorable measurable differences to some of the UK's leading brands by providing cutting edge and unique tools, tips and techniques on how to lead, motivate and engage people. I am delighted to introduce Mark Robb, who is co-founder of Positive Reframe. So Mark, welcome to the uh, podcast. And uh, as a way of introduction, can you tell us a Hi. little more about... Thank you. Yeah, as a way of introduction, can you tell us a little more about how Positive Reframe uh, operates, the ethos behind the company? and how you achieve success for your clients. Yeah, sure. Well, pleasure to be on, first of all. So, morning. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, your introduction was, was, was very good and concise. I mean, we, we're a change management consultancy. Um, we've been established over 15 years. And um, really what we, we try to do is the sweet spot we work in is the place where leaders create the conditions for success to drive the emotional commitment of their people to deliver to the customer. So those are sort of three quite distinct but interconnected areas. And so a lot of our work, as you said, really is, you know, tools, tips, techniques for leaders and how to lead, motivate, and engage. One of the big things we're trying to do is increase staff engagement. So how do you get people to bring their best version of themselves to work? How do you raise their emotional commitment? And that's something that's measurable as well, technically measurable. Um, and so that, that leads through a strong correlation to how that leads through, of course, to the customer relationship and ultimately to the numbers. So, but, but the work we're doing is the, the human side of change, if you like. So often we'll go into organizations um, and we'll sit with the top team and, and rework the strategy for the coming years and particularly the, the human component of that um, and then really help get the people in the business to do different things. Normally what organizations are doing is they're, as they're thinking about, you know, five years ahead, the sort of numbers that they want, they're also maybe thinking culturally about some things that need to change. We need less of this behavior, more of that behavior. And so that's the bit that we really help with is that, is that shift. Um, and the belief is that, you know, people can be more, do more, give more, and that leaders are the center point of making that happen. And so really the, the route to change is always through the leader and their behavior. Okay. Now, You've been at this. You've been doing this for fifteen years. But what were you doing beforehand? Mm. What, what was your role bef- before um, Positive Reframe? Yeah, well, I used to. Well, I mean, I, I used to work for Marks and Spencer. So about thirty years ago, I did my management training with M and S, and I managed stores in the UK and yeah, franchises in in Europe. And um, I was actually at one point the ladies' underwear buyer for M and S. So there's a interesting job for you. So if you want to know about lace, I'm your guy. Um, but um, you, you might remember back in the 90s, M&S had a collapse of profit. So they were at that point the most profitable retailer in Europe, 1.2 billion sterling. And in one year, their profits halved to 600 million, and they went down to a tenth of what they had been. So I was in the business recovery team, and I ran two of the culture change programs for six years as part of the business recovery. And that's really how I got into what I'm doing now. So I've been doing this kind of work for you know 22 years or more. Um, but some of that was in, inside M&S before I left to set up my own practice. So, um, yeah, that was a, a very difficult time for M&S, but, you know, a good time for me in terms of finding the kind of work that really I wanted to do for the rest of my professional career. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, that was, that was the, um, that's what I was doing directly before um, I set up Positive Reframe. Brilliant. So 
do you have um, you know sort of a really big achievement in business? Um, you know, is there something that you could actually pinpoint that, that you're really really uh, you know, satisfied with and, and a big achievement? And you know, how long did it take you to get to that? And what what did you do next? What did you do afterwards? Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting question because there's different ways of, of measuring that. I mean, I also I still think back to what, when I did the, the first change program that I did with M&S, um, which really was the, the time where I realized that this was the kind of work that I wanted to do. is still something that's in my mind, you know, and we, we started to see really commercially measurable differences to what we were doing. And, and, I, and I guess what we are always keen to do is to try and, is to try and prove that the work that we do does have a commercial impact. So, I mean, if I think about some of our, our big change programs with, with Clark's, with P&O Cruises, with, um, um, with Haven, where we, you know, had an impact on the engagement of people as well as, you know, and how that's bled through to the, the customer and, the, and ultimately the numbers. I mean, I think, you know, particularly a few years ago, what we did with, with Clark's shoes where, um, removed their engagement in 18 months from 27% to 65%. And that's, you know, that's the kind of shifts that we, you know, hope to be able to facilitate. Um, and so those those are things I guess we're proud of. But I, I guess it's an interesting question because we, we tend to look forward not so much back and not really resting on our laurels. But, you know, that's the kind of impact we're trying to have with the programs we do is making a really measurable difference and and i guess the three big metrics are always staff engagement you know the, the customer through nps or whatever other metric and then ultimately the numbers and there's a sort of chain reaction of value through to those so yeah but those are some of the big sort of programs that, that stick in our mind and we're working with all sorts of organizations i mean we're working with people like you know coca-cola and Pino cruises and mns and spec savers and businesses like this so, i mean oftentimes what we'll be doing is we may not be doing top to toe culture change in the organization. We might be working in a pocket of the organization with a division or even just with, you know, some, some leaders in, in a division. And sometimes it'll be, you know, whole top to change culture programs. So, I mean, those, those big top end things are, are great um, in terms of those numbers I mentioned. But I also think sometimes just individuals, I can remember recently we were doing some work on life leadership. So just helping leaders think about, how they want to order and um, structure their lives, really, both inside and outside of work. And you know, one particular um, lady who had who'd been on the program, who had essentially changed everything and had gone from sort of you know couch potato to ultra runner within sort of mm. a year. And you know, not that we're experts in, experts in ultra running, but what we're experts in doing is helping sort of people connect with what matters most to them in that sort of situation. And so I think some of those partial changes that people make are actually, for me, sometimes, you know, as uh, as satisfying as some of the big organizational changes, you know, a leader deciding that good grief, you know, if I could shift more to praise than correction, I could get a, a difference in my people. I mean, love that sort of thing that we're just, you know, even an individual person deciding to do something differently. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned engagement. Um, you know, can you explain a little bit more detail? Can you go into a bit more about that, what you're measuring, uh, what sort of engagement you're measuring? Mm. Is that, is that people, is that customers? Uh, what, what are you looking at? Yeah. So that's, that's the emotional commitment of people in the organization. So, if you, so Gallup, for example, is one of the world's largest research organizations and sort of at the forefront of the, the metrics around this. Um, and so they would say, you know, classically there's, three types of employees in any organization. Some people are engaged, 
mm-hmm. so that's loyal, productive, find the work satisfying, emotionally committed, you know, there with the head as well as the heart. Um, and then you've got people who are not engaged, who are more neutral, go through the motions, you know, got an eye to the clock, maybe doing the job and not doing a lot more. And actually some people are actively disengaged, coming to work to make it worse for other people. You might have met them, they're out there, well poisoners. But Gallup would say, you know, certainly if you take the, the UK perspective, sadly only 11% of the UK population are all in, fully emotionally committed. 68% are not engaged and 21% are actively disengaged. So that's problematic in two ways because clearly, you know, the, there are more actively disengaged people than engaged, which is a problem. But also it means at best 89% of people are not engaged. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, the, that's the number we're trying to measure. Now, I mean, in terms of how you measure that, you know, well, there's just different ways of measuring, you know, Gallup have a well-established deck of 12 questions, which are, you know, um, I know what's expected of me at work, um, I have the tools and equipment I need to do the work right, and at work I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day, so you're playing position daily, mm. I've had praise or recognition in the last seven days, I mean, I could run through them all, but, but the point is there are specific um, touch points around whether people feel they have a voice, whether... They feel that the mission and purpose of the company makes them feel like their work's important, whether there's development happening, how much affirmation they're receiving on a weekly basis. And some of these time frames are important too. So when people strongly agree to those uh, questions, that that's what's pointing to emotional commitment. So those are the things then we're trying to equip leaders to do differently. So very practically, if one of the key insights is that you know praise and recognition is a massive driver of human performance as well as motivation, um, then you know what are leaders doing to actually give more affirmation and correction, and so we'd be equipping them on how to do that, how to balance those things well, um, so that you know you can start to move the dial in how people perform. So when we're talking engagement, we're talking specifically about the emotional commitment of people, and the big correlation, of course, is when you compare top quartile engagement business units to bottom quartile engagement business units. The customer metrics are ten points higher when people are engaged. Productivity is 17% higher, sales are 20% higher, profitability is 21% higher, but also things like absenteeism fall off 41% and safety incidents go down. So there's a whole series of um, commercial benefits from engagement, but also it decreases a number of things that are undesirable in organizations like absenteeism, staff turnover, etc. So that's that's the, the big thing that you're trying to do is you know get people emotionally committed. Wow, there's there's some amazing figures there. I mean, I mean, you know, sales up, um, uh, safety incidents down. Um, oh yeah, absenteeism, yeah, yeah. absenteeism down as well. That's that's incredible, incredible responses. So your work yep. is is predominantly um, into the leadership of of businesses, in, into the into the 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 managers, the leaders, and the owners of the businesses, yep. rather rather that's than right. rather than the general staff. Yeah, I mean, we, we we do both, but I mean, the, the the big thing is that, you know, unless you can get leaders to change, you can't really get culture to change. And so very often our programs will end up touching uh, the frontline teams, um, but the bulk of the time and the bulk of the effort goes into the leadership community. I mean, obviously the most senior team, whether that's the executive committee or whoever it might be, but also anyone who's leading. I mean, one of the big punchlines in Gallup's research is the thing that makes the biggest difference to engagement is the immediate line manager. So 70% of a person's engagement is correlated to what their boss does. 
Um, and so what that means, of course, is that, you know, you've got to get inside the, the heads of every manager and leader in an organization because they are the weather maker for their people. We actually find that when you say, when you cast a vision and say the organization wants to go over here and we want to be more this way and less that way, most people are, you know, reasonably towards those ideas, but they're actually just waiting to see if their leaders actually role model it, do anything about it, equip and help them to make it happen. So mm -hmm. the, the key thing is, and that's not to say there's no resistance, you know, at the front line, you know, but broadly the, the issue is a leadership question. And so change goes at the speed of the leader. That's mm -hmm. what we find. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not that we don't connect with people throughout the organization. It's just that if you want change, you've, you've got to work for the leadership community. Yeah. Yeah. Now, John Maxwell's always said that the biggest barrier to being a leader is actually leading yourself. So what mm. sort of techniques do you use to lead and motivate yourself and the rest of the positive reframe uh, team? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, actually. I think it, it does start with ourselves. I mean, so so for me, I think, you know, time is the is the key question there. And really trying to focus on things that are important, not just urgent. So, you know, the the clock is a big pressure for all of us. And I think actually just not giving into the pressure in the moment, but trying to think about things that truly matter. So so that means, you know, beginning with clarity on your own individual purpose, thinking about your different roles, what your goals are in those roles. Um, and then a big thing I'm really into is trying to find synergies. So, you know, so, so for example, activity stacking. I mean, when I'm in the car, I mean, that's my learning time. I spend a lot of time in the car because, you know, I'm traveling all the time. So um, for me, you know, I call it the college car. And so car time for me is education time. So I've got my phone loaded up with, you know, books and sermons and talks and podcasts and lectures and um, feeding myself. I get about four to five hundred hours of input in the car uh, every year and so that for me is a, is a really nice synergy where I'm going to be there anyway why not use the time to feed and educate myself with stimulating material um, trying to you know in a sense keep a good exercise regime I mean I, I think that's really foundational to having you know the energy to take into life so you know trying to get sleep right the exercise right the diet right i think these are things we these are things we focus on are the things we speak to leaders about too because you know actually one one big change we often see in our program leaders is actually they start getting shape um and you know when you look at the sleep research you know if you're not getting your seven and a half hours every night and that's a specific number because sleep's in 90 minute cycles you need five five cycles a night seems to be what the most research points to at the moment most people are in somewhere between a 68-hour window. Most leaders just don't get enough sleep. Um, you know, they're, they're struggling along and, you know, four and a half, five hours, you know, five and a half hours, and it's not enough. I mean, you can function, but it means, you know, lack of concentration, poor decision-making, um, not, not, not enough energy to exercise in the evening. So, so a big thing often is just getting more sleep, you know, thinking more carefully that we eat, getting the exercise in, because, you know, all the stuff that we need to do in terms of deciding and, uh, seeking, being able to listen to other people and being able to be positive, you know, requires energy. And so I think focusing on that is a big thing. Um, I mean, for me personally, on top of all of that, you know, I'm a, I'm a committed Christian. So, um, you know, the foundation for everything for me is in you know, my, my, my daily study of the Bible and prayer and so forth. That's the, that's the center from which everything personally for me, uh, for me flows. Um, and I, again, we encourage leaders to think not just about, you know, their mind, but about their body and their spirit. And, you know, these are all important aspects of making us truly functional. Yeah, that's brilliant.
brilliant. Now, um, listeners to the podcast uh, will include people from the USA, from the Automotive Recyclers Association, and they've got a, a very successful mentorship program for, for young and aspiring leaders. Mm. Uh, mm. And it said, you know, to be a good leader, you've got to be a good follower, you know, and, and that's that's helping them. That's helping them to grow. But at what point do you think a, a follower becomes a leader? Where's that? Where's that? That that tipping point? Yeah, so it's a hard question to find a real point, isn't it? I mean, I, I think, you know, I certainly subscribe to the idea that leadership is, is a choice rather than a position in the hierarchy. So, you know, I think management is definitely a position in the hierarchy, isn't it? It's a title and uh, leadership's a choice. I mean, you, you, you can tell about people who don't have authority over others, but have, you know, a leadership impact. You know, you take classic examples from history, like, you know, the Rosa Parks of this world and so forth, where, you know, you know, a, a, a humble person without traditional authority, but, you know, sparks the civil rights movement into action. So, I mean, leadership is, is definitely um, something of choice. Um, and so I think, what I suppose the answer to that is people can lead at, at any stage. I mean, look, you know, we have to be honest as well and say when you're thinking about the traditional structures in an organization, there's no doubt that the more senior you are, the more impact that you have, not just in terms of your people, but organizational culture. And I hinted at that a minute ago. Mm. But I think certainly people can lead themselves well and they can have an impact and influence over others. And, you know, I, I don't think that's about position. So I suppose the question is you can start to lead whenever, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have traditional position power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, even young people can can become very effective leaders um, at a very at a very young age. Yeah. Well, I guess you could look to Greta Thunberg, couldn't you? Whatever you think about Greta and her beliefs, you know, there's no point. There's no 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 uh, denying that she's having an impact. So. Mm-hmm. so, how do you how do you motivate people um, when they've sort of already settled for being? satisfied they they've gotten you know little desire to actually actually move forward how do you do that when you've got people you know in your um uh, conferences and and your and your training sessions who are sat there going well you know i don't need this i don't want this why why do i need to move forward how how do you you never never met anybody like that never met anybody like that (laughs) 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 yeah no i mean look you know it, it Back to my stats of a minute ago, if 68% of people in the UK, let's say, are not engaged, then, you know, that that means seven seven people out of 10 are turning up at any kind of event in that slightly neutral position. I mean, I, I, come, from the, I come from the place that people want to be engaged, mm-hmm. but, that, that, but that people just haven't found the, the triggers yet. So I don't come from a position of saying, oh, well, that's a standard distribution curve that's immovable. We've seen, you know, over the years, so many times people moving, people who are actually, you know, negative in organizations and some would, would think of as, you know, destructive um, and yet can be sort of realigned to the new purpose and mission and change. So, I mean, to, to answer the question in terms of what are the, the, the levers, um, I, so, you know, the reason I was saying that is I think that people want to be engaged. They often are at some point in their life. So, you know, you find this difficult person in the organization um, but yet they're leading the scout troop out of work or they've climbed the Himalayas or they're doing the sponsor walk or they're running the marathon. So people do do emotional commitment. Mm. You know, the question is just whether you get it in the workplace. And, and as I said, that's down to leaders. So what should be what should be some of the, the triggers we're pulling to make that happen? Well, clarity is is a massive one. 
So I think people, first of all, understanding what they are aiming for. You know, we're aiming creatures. We like to aim. Um, and, you know, people will pay a lot of money to go and watch people run up and down a basketball court and throw balls in the hoop or kick balls in the net. And, uh, you know, we, we like to aim. We're the only creatures that can aim and throw spears and shoot guns and things. And yeah. so, first of all, crystal clear clarity on something meaningful that people have got to aim at. That's, that's a big one. Second thing, I think, is that people got to play in, stre- in position. You know, they've got to use their strengths. So if people are doing the stuff they're created to do, and I find all too often organizations are trying to make people rounded, you know, be a bit good at everything, which is, you know, crazy. People are not created rounded. The best guy in sales will always be the worst guy at admin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why torture him and try to do his admin? You know, set him a higher sales target and it'll pay for an administrator. So, you know, play people in position, let them use their natural gifts. And then you can give praise, which is the third element, because... People thrive on praise. And that doesn't mean we don't ever discuss areas of underperformance, but leaders really should be sneaking around and catching people doing things right rather than the alternative. And then fourthly and finally, I think, you know, genuine concern for others, actually, so people don't feel like they're a number, that actually there's some real genuine relationship uh, between the the leader and and their team. So I think, you know, for giving crystal clear clarity, playing people in position, giving them loads of praise, showing care and concern, those are four big anchor points for actually driving motivation. And you know, they're they're derived from the research too. They're sort of a meta summary of some of the, the findings across the studies of what, what help people. So I think it often is a, you know, it's it's a journey when you're trying to get people switched on who are a bit neutral. And it's you know, it's we, we were doing it all the time because as you say, you go in and maybe people are a little bit, you know, cool and waiting to see if you know anything real and meaningful is going to happen from this program. But you know, you keep chipping away, and that's what we always say to leaders. Yeah. You just keep chipping away, you know. But keeping those four themes in mind, I think, is is really a solid foundation for driving emotional commitment. Amazing. I've I've always said that the podcasts, you know, um, and particularly doing stuff like this, has is basically free free consultation from myself, and and that that last mm. um, uh, section there is just is, is just paid for. It. It's just brilliant. You know, you know, clarity, strengths, praise, concern. Um, you know, th- yeah. you know, I'm I'm making notes on that, and 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 <laughs> it's just, you know, you know, yeah. those, those people who are listening, just 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 pause and rewind and, and go back over that and take some notes because uh, that, you know, that's that's on, on its own is just incredible. Oh, well, it's, it's good to hear you say that. I mean, and like you say, they're they're not just, you know, randomly chosen. There really are four big meta themes from the from the research as well. Yeah, brilliant. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, <clears throat> I've worked in the insurance industry for, for many, many years. And one of the things that mm. they, were, they were very, very conscious about was moving people on all the time, moving people, you know, 18 months, two years, three years, move into another challenge, move into... Mm. another role is there a right time for for successful leaders to move onwards to move on to another challenge or to a new position yeah i mean it, it, it's difficult to give you know the definitive position on it because i think there is a situational aspect but but i would tend to move people on less in honesty i mean the, the reason i say that is you know when you know, there's a temptation, you know, and sports teams are the same to keep changing managers and so forth. And, you know, the two most successful football teams in the English Premier League have, you know, had the two longest serving managers. So, you know, Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger, you know, won the most titles over the last like, 20, 30 years. Um, when you look at, you know, the um, 
good to great would be a good reference yeah. point. Jim Collins' yeah. famous study on leadership, you know, and what Collins said was, you know, those those eleven transformation leaders of the Fortune 500 studied over thirty years. You know, they they were there fifteen years. Mm. I mean, and so, you know, when you look at you know, Bob Eisner is running, you know, Disney right now. Has he been CEO for twenty years or something? So there's there's definitely there's definitely some something to be said for giving people time in roles to actually establish uh, some rhythms and routines, a way of doing things, a strategic direction, a culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think chopping and changing too much is counterproductive. Now, of course, at the more junior levels, giving people the opportunity to move around, to gain expertise, to gain you know new insight and broaden their skill base, you know, there can be advantages to that. But but I I get a little nervous when organisations move people around too much. It's also very difficult then to measure what people have actually achieved because mm-hmm. there's a tight there's a time lag between what leaders do and results. And so there's a there's a danger that you move somebody on and the new person comes in and rides on the glories of the benefits that come from the other person. <laughs> and so I think you know. And, and this was this was all sort of laid out, you know, in the, you know, the service profit chain uh, study that that was, you know, originally uh, done by two Harvard Business Review professors. And and there really is a time lag between leadership action and results. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's one of the things I find that leaders really really struggle with is that, you know, the immediacy when you become more senior, the immediacy between an action taken and a result seen is a really big time lag, and it's hard for, to get fulfillment actually that way. But um, but anyway, yeah. I, I think it's it's a bit situational, but I, if I was leaning one way, I'd be leaning to giving people an opportunity to actually establish something before they get shuffled around too quickly. Yeah, yeah, and you know that sort of yeah straight into the next question. And again, I've seen this in the insurance industry. But why do some leaders fail to have a successor? Fail to have somebody coming up behind them who can take their role? Yeah, can take their job. Yeah, now that is a really, that is a really good question. I mean, it's interesting because. I, Again, I don't want to be uh, too too one size fits all, but I mean, I think ego is the enemy here. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the lack of successor is is probably something to do with the with the leader who is a little too focused on what they're doing. And I, I, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with you know soccer and so forth. So you've got folks from the states, but you know, Alex Ferguson is the most successful uh, manager and. English football history, you know, maybe even European football mm-hmm. history, and uh, yet he left no successor and a shambles um, when he left. And so that's not to criticise what he was able to achieve as an individual, but unfortunately, it was singularly dependent on him. Um, that's not to, that's not in any way to draw him out as a bad example of leadership, because quite the contrary, his achievements are incredible. But you do see, um, you, you do see that commonly, and so I, I think when the focus of the leaders on themselves. Jim Collins talked a lot about this, where he said, you know, he, he talked about these level five leaders, you know, who were humble, self-facing, gritty mm-hmm. and determined, who were leading the 11 most successful companies in the Fortune 500, you know, measured by outstripping their competitors by a factor of three or more. But then he described the alternative, which is the genius with a thousand helpers. Where he said that type of leader is incredibly impressive individual and, and able to do amazing things, but unfortunately doesn't build something that lasts because it's so centered on them when they go, um, success fades away. Yeah. And so I, I think it's it's really hard, you know, when you glim about it, it's really hard to to build a successor because leaders are so 
busy often and challenged with just trying to make things happen that actually building for the future is difficult um but but i i, I think it's it's two leadership mindsets it's you know am i the genius of a thousand helpers or am i actually you know here to build something great that's sustainable over time and yeah it's it's, it's a tough one yeah oh, again again you know those people listening stop pause rewind re-listen to that because that is amazing advice that's incredible advice thank you mark thank you <clears throat> excuse me um so you know how do you help people identify their leadership talents giving the confidence uh, to believe in themselves to lead people have you got any tips around that yeah i actually do i i am um... I, do you know what? When I speak to most leaders, particularly more senior leaders, they usually, and you talk to them about their journey to where they've got to, and very often they will talk about a figure, you know, a boss they had who sort of believed in them, got behind them, encouraged them, saw something in them that maybe they didn't even see themselves, uh, had their back, you know, wasn't a softie, you know, challenged them and pushed them, but, you know, somebody who was a real cheerleader for them. And, and I think, so I think the first thing I'd be is for leaders who are listening, you've got the opportunity to do that. Be that person to someone else. Mm. Because there's usually, it's like we can all remember the one great teacher. Well, you know, people have got that one great boss as well. Somebody who, you know, made them believe that they could be more than they were. And so, you know, we should be aiming to be that person for some others. Um, in, in terms of, you know, actually as an individual trying to decide, you know, what's my you know leadership skill i mean for me i think there's definitely a trial and error aspect here you know you might find that you know you're in one type of division and you do okay you move to a different type and you do spectacularly and maybe there's just something about finding your exact right fit so that thing about leaders moving around for young managers and young leaders taking the opportunity to move around uh, when people give you opportunities on a project where you know, grab every opportunity you can, I always say that to people, you know, it, the answer is yes. You know, you know, do you want to be involved? Yes. I mean, just say yes to things because, you know, the more chance you have to try different things, the more you'll start to find out where the absolute sweet spot for you is. And yes. specialization, I think, is something that comes later. I speak to a lot of young, you know, managers and leaders now, often they want to specialize, you know, a bit, too early um and i think you know that comes later you, you might need to you know try a number of different things till you find the absolute sort of you know confluence where your gifts passion temperament overlap with where the business has a need and then you can really be you know your optimum so i would definitely recommend that and so so, so the, the first thing is you know find a mentor i suppose is what i'm saying the second thing is you know try a load of different things and say yes to broaden your opportunities and the third thing i would say is read widely yeah. You know, listen to podcasts, you know, take in audiobooks. I always recommend audiobooks rather than reading books because I find most people find, just find it hard time-wise to get through reading books. But, you know, with, with audio, you know, when you're in the car or on the train or on the plane, you know, you can, once, once we're all moving again, you um, can, you know, get so much input and so much content. And so much of the, of the content that's out there right now is free as well. So many fantastic podcasts, you know, like this where people can just, you know, come in for free information so I think, you know, yeah, get a mentor, try loads of things, read widely, and, uh, you know, little by little, you start to build up a, you know, a picture of, of it. But it takes time, I think. It takes time to find out, you know, where is the absolute sweet spot where you can be at your best. Mm -hmm. oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. 
Uh, it's been been incredible um, half hour discussion with you, Martin. Thank you, thank you so much for that. And there's oh. so many, so many. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So many nuggets here for people to to take away and and reflect on and uh, and whatever. So, how can our listeners find out more about Positive Reframe and 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 Mark Rob? Yeah, so so the the best place to go is to the website, which is www.positivereframe.co.uk. Um, you can email us at info at positivereframe.co.uk or you can direct email me at mark at positivereframe.co.uk and uh, always very happy to to chat and if you want to see case studies of you know work that we've done that might help them in their organization so yeah that would be the easiest place to go lovely thank you thank you for that and final question and we are, we're asking this of everyone on the podcast what was your, oh, yeah. what was your first car and do you have any special <laughs> in that car <laughs> yeah, uh, so my, my first car was a white Mini, and uh, so she had a name, Esmeralda, so strange, but there it is. So yeah, so I got when I was 17, so as soon as I passed my test, I couldn't wait to get out and uh, and get in my own car. So um, yeah, white Mini, I've got fantastic memories of that car, actually. So um, both out, I was one of my first of my friends to, to have a car so I'd always be running people around and uh, yeah it's a great period of life when you're 17, 18 and uh, you get that sense of freedom with the car and also when I when I started working I, I still had the car for the first year when I was working so I can remember uh, I started my management training with M&S in Dundee which is about an hour's drive from where I was born in Edinburgh so I um, yeah I can remember scooting back and forth from uh, the weekend sometimes from Dundee's head and buzzed along on the mini. Yeah, loved it. Yeah, lovely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of my first ones was a black mini. So, uh, you know, yeah. Oh, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, great little car. And I mean, they really were small too. The minis yeah. now are really big, but yeah. I mean, the actual original '60s kind of mini that you have in your your ride is uh, not that this was in the '60s, of course, in the '80s. But uh, yeah, I mean, they were very small, but a cracking little car. Lovely car. Lovely car. Really enjoyed. Really enjoyed them. So, yeah, brilliant. Mark, thank you very, very much for this. It's been a real inspiration to talk to you uh, uh, this morning. Oh, my and, pleasure. Uh, and, and I know that our listeners will, will seriously enjoy this and, uh, and, uh, and you know, get benefit from it. We are all better for it. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, no, happy to do it. I hope it's helpful.